One area of my past that the enemy reminds me of is my failure to measure up. The times when I didn't stand up for my faith. The bad relationship I had with my dad. He allowed alcohol to be his master. The enemy constantly reminds me of times I have messed up since I was saved. Broken friendships that I never repaired. Well, our focus these last few weeks has been on that very subject that God is greater. And we've talked about God being greater than our fear, God being greater than our injustice. I so enjoyed Jerry last week and focusing not just on the plight of the unborn, but how many injustices there are in our society and how so often we as believers are not attentive to those things, realizing that God through us is greater than all of those things. And today we want to spend a little bit of our time looking at how God is greater than our past. And I hope that you were paying attention to those lyrics that we just sang together. They go again like this. Hello, my name is Regret. I'm pretty sure we've met. Every single day of your life, I'm the whisper inside that won't let you forget. And it comes down really to one word, and that one word is regrets. And I would say to you this morning that this is one of those messages, one of those topics that I don't care where you are this morning, who you are, how old you are, I guarantee you there is an application point for every single person that's in this auditorium this morning and that will be in the next service because we all have regrets. Over the years, many of us, the men here at Northwest, have enjoyed playing softball. And what I have found about church softball is that church softball can either bring out the best in you or it can bring out the worst in you. For me, most often, it is the worst. And I know it's hard for you to believe, but I've never been a superstar athlete. I know it's difficult when you look at this fine specimen up here, you think he must be, right? Don't laugh, all right? But I've never been a fantastic athlete. I've always been just good enough to, to participate on teams and, it, and at some points to, to make a difference. But I've never been a superstar. But I will tell you this, I am competitive. I want to win. I don't like to lose. And when my team doesn't win or when I don't win, my temperament can come out very, very quickly. And I want to tell you about one of my regrets. Several uh, years ago, I was playing on one of our Northwest softball teams, and I came to the field that balmy June evening. I remember it just like it was last week. Showed up at the field. We started warming up. The game started, and right from the beginning, the game was not going well. And about the second or third in inning, uh, the guy that was pitching, who is a very, very dear friend of mine, he just shouldn't have been pitching in my estimation. And after all, I'm, I'm one of the pastors, so if I tell you not to pitch, then you shouldn't be pitching, right? That, at least that was my attitude as I'm standing there at, at second base. And, and one inning, I think it was like the second or third inning, he gave up like four or five walks, and we're just kind of walking these guys around the bases. Finally, we got the third out, and I really couldn't take it any longer, and I felt this intense urge, this insatiable desire to make sure that he knew exactly how I felt at that particular moment. 
And so as I ran by him coming from second base to the pitcher's mound, I I said to him, why don't you let someone else pitch? You're going to cost us the game. And he responded, if you think you can do better, why don't you pitch next inning? Well, I didn't want to pitch, and I went into the dugout and sat down on the bench, and I told him, why don't you just take me out of the game? The game's not worth playing. And rather than cheering on my team for the next several innings, I sat there on the bench like a pouty little middle school girl and, um, and pouted for the whole rest of the game. Uh, a really proud moment for me. As I had just the Sunday before, I think it had been Father's Day, and I had talked to men about how to be a godly man and how to to stand with, with biblical principles and have your life guided by those things. And it didn't take very long before I deeply regretted what I had done. And even to this day, while there are funny parts of the story, even as I tell you the story, I remember what that feeling was like and how immediately I felt this little tap on the shoulder, this whisperer saying to me, and they call you pastor. You remember what you preached just last Sunday? You've really blown it. How could you have any credibility whatsoever? You are a pathetic excuse of a leader. All of us, if we're honest, you felt exactly like I just described. You've done something, you've said something, you've regretted it. Things you've done that you wish you hadn't done. Things you should have done that you didn't do. Things you said that you shouldn't say. Things that you should have said that you didn't say. We all have them. And you know, here's the truth of the matter that for those of us that are here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, we know, don't we? We, we know that God forgives us. We, we get that. But we have a difficult time, don't we, forgiving ourselves. Because the whisper is always reminding us of the things we've said and the things we've done and there's that real heaviness that we feel inside. Maybe it's something that you said to a loved one and even as you said it, you thought, I really don't mean this, but in a, in a moment of, of anger or frustration, you said something and you can't take it back and as a result of that, you fractured that relationship with a person that you deeply love. There are some of you here this morning and your parents and you have deep, deep regrets. You've always wanted to be a great parent. In fact, you made a determination even before you were married and you had kids. I'm going to be a great parent. I am not going to fail my son or my daughter like my parents did me. I'm going to be great. And yet, you haven't spent enough time with your kids because there have been other priorities in your life. You haven't taught them to love Jesus and to live by biblical principles. You've said things to them that have hurt them, that have crushed their spirit. And now after they're all grown grown up, you have huge regrets. Some of us have made poor financial decisions. We've, We've spent more than we had in the bank. We've bought things that we really couldn't afford to buy. We've we've gotten into debt. And now we find ourselves not being able to even afford the basic necessities of life some months. And we have a heavy burden because of that debt, and we regret the choices that we've made that have led us into that situation, and we're constantly reminded of it. Some of us have not or did not take care of our aging parents. This is a huge thing in our society today. We have things that have occupied our time and and have caused us to justify our lack of involvement and care for them. 
Some of us didn't care for them and felt like we were justified because they didn't do such a great job parenting us. And after all, we remember the things that they said to us that crushed our spirit, how they didn't take care of us. And so we didn't take care of them. We didn't minister and serve them in their greatest time of need. And now they're gone and you regret not caring for them and showing respect to them. But it's too late. For some of us, it's past sexual sin. Maybe a past relationship that you had with with someone that even today you ask yourself, why did I ever get involved with that person? For some of us, it is simply the regret of not sharing our faith when God presented a very clear opportunity and yet we were more concerned about what that person might think about us or how they might respond to the gospel message and so we kept our mouths closed. Maybe there was an opportunity for us to defend someone who needed a defense and yet we sat by silently and now we regret that decision. I know a lot of people that unfortunately have strayed from their marriage and they did something that betrayed their spouse. And here you are years later and you know that your spouse has forgiven you, you know that God has forgiven you, that your children have forgiven you. And yet you just can't forgive yourselves. And so uh, there is this aching, this sense of total failure that doesn't seem to go away. There are some of you who have recently come to know Jesus as your Savior and now you think constantly about all the years that you wasted. Or maybe you came to Christ at a very young age and yet you're sitting here as a 40-something or a 50-something and you're going, I have wasted my life. And day after day after day, the enemy whispers into your ear that you're useless. I know a lot of people, unfortunately, that are divorced and there's this real sense of guilt. They think maybe if I'd have just tried a little bit harder, if I'd have prayed a little bit more, maybe my marriage wouldn't have ended. And yet here I am in this place and there is regret. For some of us, it's just simply a reoccurring sin. There's something that you've done and you've prayed over and over and over again, God, forgive me of this, and you go two or three weeks, and then about on that fourth week, you do it all over again, and you're carrying the weight of those past uh, decisions and that past sin, and you just seem to not be able to shake it. I give you all those examples because I guarantee you that everyone in this room, as I just went through that list, Every one of us said, yeah, that's mine. Maybe for some of us, if you're like me, you went, yeah, that's mine, and that's mine, and yeah, I kind of feel that way as well. You have regrets. Here's how we typically respond to regrets, by the way. Some of us think we don't have any regrets, and we act as if we don't. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever, if if some of you have grown up in families like uh, I think my family is, and that is, if we don't acknowledge it and we don't talk about it, it doesn't exist. Anybody grow up in a family like that? And what it does is it produces individuals that behave that way too, right? And so there can be an elephant sitting right in the room, but as long as we don't talk about it, as long as we don't acknowledge it, it doesn't exist. And that's the way some of us deal with regrets. We think we have no regrets, or we certainly act as if we don't, or we try to cover our past and simply ignore it. We don't confess it, we don't forsake it, We just simply ignore it or act as if it didn't happen and it'll somehow go away. But here's the truth, as we've already seen this morning. It doesn't go away, does it? Satan continues to whisper. John tells us in in chapter 8, in verse 44, that he is the father of lies. 
So he lies to us and he tells us that we're useless, that we're hypocrites, that we'll never be good for anything. Revelation 12.10 says that he is the accuser of the brethren. That's what he does. That's his, 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 his greatest attack against a believer is to constantly accuse and remind us of our past failures and our regrets. He says things like this, there's no way you're forgiven. Have you forgotten what you've done? Do you really think that God washed you clean on the inside? Really? (laughs) Sometimes I feel as if he says, can I just simply replay a video of what you've done? Can I just simply remind you of what you've done and how you've behaved and how you've acted and just how pathetic and how useless you are and you have the audacity to say that you're forgiven? You have the nerve to stand up in church and say, my chains are gone. I've been set free. And so here's what we do. We simply live in guilt. We live with regrets. So many of us, unfortunately, were just like David when David wrote in Psalm 38.4, he said this, my guilt has overwhelmed me. It's overwhelmed me, he said, like a burden too heavy to bear. We feel overwhelmed and we live in guilt. You know, I take great comfort in this book when it comes to regrets and failures. I'm so thankful. I think if I'd have been God, I'd have talked about all the superstars. (laughs) All the superstars who came into a relationship with me and look at who they are. That's what I would do. God chose to do something very different in Scripture. And Scripture is filled with people who could have written those words that I just read that David wrote, how my guilt has overwhelmed me. How about Moses who led the children of Israel out of Egypt after God talked to him from a burning bush? Don't forget that early in the book of Exodus, we read that he murdered a man and tried to cover it up. How about David who was called a a man after God's own heart? Let's not forget what he did. He committed adultery and if that wasn't bad enough, then he murdered the guy. How about Peter? Who, yes, as we come to the book of Acts, he he preached to to thousands and thousands of people, placed their trust in Christ alone as their Savior. And what a great moment for him. But let's not forget that just weeks earlier, he had denied that he even knew Jesus when a little servant girl asked him, didn't I see you with him? How about that little man? That little man named Zacchaeus. Yeah, we read about him, that Jesus went home to him and had lunch with him, but, and, and his life was transformed, his life was changed. But let's not forget who he was before that. He actually stole from his people. He was a thief. In Joshua chapter 2, and if you have your Bibles, I'd like to get, for you to turn there for just a few moments. In Joshua chapter 2, we meet a woman who no doubt had a lot of regrets about her past, and In fact, in the 14 times that her name is mentioned in the Bible, she is most often referred to as this. Get this. She's referred to as Rahab the what? The prostitute. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if I was known as Brian, the guy who can't control himself on the softball field? You laugh, but that'd be horrible, right? Or your name, Joe, the guy who... Or, or Jane, the, the woman who, imagine if your past followed you everywhere you went. You were known as whatever your name is, and then the tagline was that heinous sin that you've committed that you regret so much that has weighed so heavy on you. That's how she was. 
Every time her name was mentioned, it was followed by the sin that she had committed. Imagine Rahab's parents. <laughs> Rahab's parents no doubt had high hopes for their daughter. Nobody says, I hope my daughter grows up to be known as the prostitute of the town. Well, they had high hopes for her, just like you and I do for our kids, and yet she was known as a woman who sold her body for money. They wanted her to be satisfied with life, no doubt, and make a, a difference in her world, and yet she didn't end up being that girl. And it would have been so easy for us to just say, well, she's pretty worthless. And we read in Joshua chapter 2 that soon after Moses' death, God told Joshua that he and the people were to cross the Jordan and occupy the promised land. But before crossing, Joshua sent two spies into the land and and they just happened to end up, I believe, in God's sovereignty. They ended up at Rahab's house. It perhaps was an inn or maybe even a brothel. That's where they ended up for shelter from the, the people in the, in, the, in the city that were there. And news of the arrival of the spies was not long in reaching the king of Jericho. And he quite naturally demanded that Rahab divulge their whereabouts. And yet she cleverly admitted seeing them, but insisted that they had left the city. And so she hides them under stalks of flax on the roof of the house. And when the king's search party leaves Jericho to hunt the spies, Rahab confesses to the spies the reason for her complicity with the Israelites' cause is that she feared the God of the Jews, believing that he would surely give them victory. It says in verse 11, For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. She knew that God was who he said he was and that he would do what he said he would do. And if you were to read there in that text, you'll see that she had heard about what was God, God was doing through the nation of Israel and in other cities and towns. And for her help, she just simply asked that they would save her and her family when they came back. And they agreed on a, on a sign, and the sign was to be a cord of scarlet thread that would be hanging from her window. And so when they came to conquer the city in chapter 6, Rahab, they found that cord hanging out of the window, and her family and her were saved. It's a great little story there in the Bible, and we don't have time to really dissect it this morning. A great story, but here's, here's the point of, of Rahab. Rahab had skeletons in her closet, and yet her impact carries into the New Testament. If, you've, if you know her story and if you followed her story, you'll see that she is a significant person in the stream of God's restoration of the world. In fact, if you go to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 5, you'll read that she was uh, the wife of Salmon, the mother of Boaz. Boaz married who? Ruth. The father of Obed, who was the father of Jesse, who was the father of who? King David. Uh, that is the genealogy of Jesus. <laughs> you look at that and you go, how does that happen? I mean, doesn't God in his sovereignty look down and say, no way. I don't want my son to be born of somebody that, you know, and I have to list it in the genealogy, Rahab, the prostitute. I don't want that. And yet I think God in his sovereignty, and I think even today in 2015, God does it so that he can show us and prove to us once again that I am bigger than your past. I'm greater than your past. I can use you and I can work through that. If you, if you go to Hebrews chapter 11, she's listed as the woman of faith alongside pe people like Isaac and Jacob and Gideon and David. How does that happen? 
It's really simple because God delights in doing something incredible in and through the lives of broken people. Aren't you glad for that? God delights in doing that. In spite of our past regrets, contrary to what Satan says about us, God takes broken things and he makes beautiful things out of those ashes and he makes them useful. Joel chapter 2 and verse 25 says, I'll restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. That's what God delights to do. And so this morning, you can look at your regrets, you can look at your failures, and, 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 and you can decide to believe that, to believe what Satan says about who you are because of what you've done, because of what you said, because of what you haven't done or haven't said, or you can choose to believe that God is greater than your past. And I believe there's three ways this morning, very simple ways in which we can do that. Number one, we have to remember that our biggest sins are not too big for God's grace. Our biggest sins are not too big for God's grace. It begins with acknowledging our sin and confessing it. And you know what that means. What confession is, is simply agreeing with God. I'm agreeing with God that what I did, what I said, that was wrong. I'm agreeing with God that that sin, I'm confessing it, I'm acknowledging it, and I'm committed to moving in a new direction. And 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, and he'll do what? He'll forgive us of our sins. He doesn't whisper back to us. What makes this especially challenging is that Satan's lies fit hand in hand with our feelings, prompting our flesh to stand up and say, that's right, I've confessed my sins, but since I, don't, I still don't feel forgiven, God's promise to forgive me must not be enough. I've got to do something else in addition to my confession to really get forgiveness. And we make it sound as if, if we simply just feel guilty all the time that somehow we're doing penance for what we've done. That's the scenario, in fact, that men like Martin Luther got into hundreds of years ago when men under the conviction of sin would beat themselves bloody. They would, in fact, get on their knees and walk for miles and even crawl over broken glass thinking that somehow they were repaying for their sins by shedding their own blood. And here's the truth of the matter. We don't have to shed blood for our own sins because Jesus has already shed his In fact, John wrote, if we walk in the light as as he himself is in the light, the blood of Jesus, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. And so we don't have to fall into the devil's trap of believing that somehow we've got to pay for our sins. We've got to do something more. All we have to do is simply believe in the blood of Jesus that it cleanses us completely and totally from all sin if we acknowledge, if we confess, get things right, and we move in a new direction. Number two, we have to remember that we are not what we've done. We are who God says we are. We're not what we've done. We are who God says we are. Here's an important thing for you and I to remember, that our past can explain how we got to where we are, but our past does not need to define us. I don't want you to miss that. Our past can explain a lot about how we got to where we are, but our past does not need to define us. So many of us are living our lives as if what we've done in the past now defines who we are. Because of what we've done back here, this is what we just have to to say is we're we're just doomed to, to be this right now. 
Maybe you grew up in an abusive home and you say, as a result of that, I've got all this baggage and so I have to live this way now. Maybe a, a, a marriage has ended and through no desire of your own and, and now you find yourself not where you thought you would have been 20 years ago and you think, well, this is just my lot in life. This is just how I have to live. No, our past has a way of explaining how we got to where we are, but it does not need to define us. You see, our society defines people by what they've done, right? You're an addict. You're not somebody who had a drug problem. You're, you're an addict. You're a financial failure. You're not a person who made a bad decision, and as a result of that, no, you're a, you're a financial failure. You're a divorcee. You're an adulterer. But when we come into a relationship with Jesus, he defines us in a different way. Not by what we've done, but by who we now are. And it's so important for you to understand that. I wrote down a bunch of things. I'm going to give them to you here real quickly. Who does God say that I am in Christ? Re remind yourself of these things. Number one, I'm a child of God. I'd be one thing to be a child of whoever your parents are. I'm sure they were great people, but they're not God, right? When God says in John 1:12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become what? Children of God. And as a result of that, number two, we're adopted. He predestined us for adoption. It's one thing, I, Diana and I chose to have our kids, but we didn't particularly choose our kids, right? I mean, we thought after seven ultrasounds that uh, the doctors told us, and the ultrasounds back in the day, trust me, kids, they weren't like they are now. I saw one this week and I'm going, dude, like I can tell the color of that kid's eyes from that ultrasound. That was awesome. We thought after seven ultrasounds, we were told that Jordan was going to be a girl. He's not. You can obviously see that today. You can imagine how shocked I was in that delivery room when out comes this little boy, right? And I didn't, I didn't necessarily choose that. In fact, I thought I was having a girl. I think it's significant that God says that we're adopted, that he chose us. That out of everybody that he's ever created, he chose to have a relationship with you. And he chose to have a relationship with me. As a result of being children, of being adopted, number three, we have an inheritance. Uh, I don't have much of one. I don't know about you. I got friends that have gotten big inheritances. And I've been thinking, man, I grew up in the wrong family. I was on the wrong. You ever feel that way? I'm on the wrong side of the tracks. I didn't get an inheritance, so you heard me say this before. I got some old tools and some old books when my dad went to be with Jesus. But I, here's the bigger thing, that because of who I am in Christ, I have an inheritance that I can't lose in the stock market. I can't lose in a poor real estate deal. I can't squander it away because it is reserved for me in heaven in whom we have obtained an inheritance. I'm a new creation 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I'm no longer under condemnation. And so when Satan whispers to me something about my past, I don't have to fear that because I'm not under condemnation anymore. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God is for me. And if God is for me, then who can be against me? What shall we say to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then here's what I think is the most significant thing about who God says, I am in Christ, and that is I am free. I am free. 
I'm no longer under the weight, under the bondage of sin. Satan may try to remind me of those things. I may think about my past and have those past regrets, but I am free. In fact, John said in John chapter 8, verse 36, so if the Son has set you free, you will be, you are free indeed. So we're not defined by what we've done. We are who God says we are. And then number three, we can't change our past but God can change our future. Here's a truth I heard a pastor just this week. I was listening to a sermon and he, and he said this and it really stuck with me. Every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. If you're here this morning and you know who you are in Christ, remember that you do have a past. And without Jesus, you would not be who you are today. But every sinner, every one of us who knows our past mistakes and regrets, we also have a future. And I found this to be true, that every person that God has used in a significant way at any time, at any place in the world, um, that person had a past. They had regrets. But because of what Jesus did on the cross, we now have a future. In fact, look what Paul said in, in Philippians chapter 3. He had regrets. He had a past. In fact, in verse 13 of chapter 2, he said, Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it on my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, and I strain forward to what lies ahead. If there was any guy with a past, it was the Apostle Paul, right? I mean, he persecuted and killed Christians. Imagine the first time he got up in front of a group of people to preach. <laughs> and he thought, what credibility do I have? I remember remembering that the night that I kind of lost myself on the softball field. Hey, I didn't murder anybody, Right? All I did was tell him, uh, you know, hey, he shouldn't pitch next inning. I mean, I, I didn't slice his throat or anything like that. may have wanted to at that particular moment, but I didn't do that. The apostle Paul took somebody's life, and yet God still used him. And Paul said, but, but one thing I do, I have to forget what's behind me, that that's under the blood of Jesus, and I have to strain forward for what lies ahead. In Luke chapter 15, I don't want to spend a lot of time here because we're going we're gonna to get into this particular parable in our next series. But we read of a son who decided that life wouldn't, would be more exciting if he lived somewhere else, like not next to his dad. And so he said to his dad, hey, dad, can I have my inheritance? Now, last time I checked, you get an inheritance after the dad dies. Irregardless of what we think, the dad gives him his portion of the inheritance. He divides the wealth. He gives the son what he's asked for. I'm reminded that God does that with us so many times, doesn't he? We ask for something that he knows is not good for us, and yet he gives it to us in order that we might learn that he really does know and want what's best for us, and that what we think really satisfies us really doesn't, that he is the ultimate source of satisfaction. And if you read there in Luke chapter 15, the young man goes his way, and the Bible says he went to a distant country, and he squandered his estate with loose living. Everything, everything was gone. And he found himself basically lying next to the pigs, looking at the pigs, wishing he could eat as well as they were eating. And I can imagine he was singing a few lines from Les Mis. I don't know how many of you saw Les Mis. I love Les Mis. I, I watched it for three hours on an airplane and I thought I would hate it. And I absolutely loved it. I loved all the music. And one of my favorite parts is one of the themes. I dreamed a dream in time gone by when hope was high and life worth living. I dreamed that love would never die. I dreamed that God would be forgiving. That's what the, that's what the young man thought about when he left. And, and then it kind of ends. I had a dream my life would be so different from this hell I'm living. 
So different now from what it seemed, now life has killed the dream I dreamed. He has regrets. And so he decides to go home and confess to his father he has no hope of his dad accepting him back. And so he comes up with a plan. I'll just go back there and maybe he'll let me be one of his slaves, one of his servants. And and they live better than I'm living right now. And so he goes back and Verse 20 says, so he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine who is dead has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. This is definitely one of my favorite parables and one of my favorites. And there's a lot of them and they're great. This is one of my favorites because I just say, wow. I love this because it's the message that, that God gives us from a sovereign, loving God of the universe. Notice he doesn't say to the young man, to his son, hey, change your clothes. Shave that beard. What is that on your face? He doesn't tell him, you know how worried I've been about you? Do you know how much money you've wasted? You don't have any of it left. Where have you been? Who have you been with? And what have you done with them? All those things that we might have said, right? If we'd have been the parent. He doesn't say any of that. He immediately restores him to his relationship as a son. And he throws a party and he starts the process of renewing the relationship. And here's the great news this morning that God is willing to do the same thing for us. If you're here and you know Jesus as your personal Savior, in fact, that is exactly what God has already done for you and for me. He does that every day by welcoming repentant sinners back into a relationship with him. I quote this verse so often at Northwest, Lamentations 3. 22 says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Here's the bottom line. I don't care this morning what you've done. God doesn't care. I don't care how far down the wrong road you've traveled. God's there to meet you. And I can tell you this. He comes running to us just like the dad of the lost son. His arms find us, and in those arms we find forgiveness, we find mercy, we find grace. Don't buy into the lie that God is not greater than your past, that God's not greater than your regrets. I hear people say things like, I'd really love to mentor young people, but you know, how could I ever mentor them based on all the mistakes that I've made? I'd like to be a better parent, but how could I ever be a better parent? I mean, I've made so many mistakes. I'm not even sure my kids really like me. I've said so many things. I haven't done things that I should have done. It's probably too late. There are probably some of you here this morning that say, I'd like a better marriage, but man, I've said and done so many bad things and so much water has gone under the bridge that I can't possibly have the marriage that I thought one day I would have. In fact, I don't even deserve it. Why do we say these things? We say these things because at the end of the day, we really don't buy into the idea that God is greater than our past. We live as if our past regrets are greater than what Jesus actually did for us on the cross. And here's the bottom line. If you get nothing else this morning, get this. God is inviting us to believe that he is who he says he is 
to believe that you are, that we are who he says that we are, and then to live in such a way as if we really believe those things. Because if you really believe who you are, or if you're not here this morning as a follower of Jesus, who you can be in Christ, then God wants to do incredible things in and through your life. And for some of you, maybe you're ready for a fresh start this morning. I, I want to tell you that, that, that the past, that you can be healed, that you can be restored, that you can be rebuilt. And it's never an easy journey, but I guarantee you it'll be the most worthwhile venture of your entire life. By remembering three simple things, our biggest sins are not too big for God's grace. We're not what we've done. We are who God says we are. And you can't change the past but God can indeed change your future. I love the way that that song ends that Tyler sang earlier. What love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called his children. My name is child of the one true king. I've been saved, I've been changed, I've been set free. Amazing grace, that's the song that I sing. I want to challenge you because, again, as I said earlier, all of us have regrets. If you're here this morning and you think, man, he went through that list, I have none. Life's been good for me. Shame on you. There's an elephant in the room and you're ignoring him. We all have regrets, but God is bigger than those regrets. We have to believe that and live that way. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, the guilt you're feeling is because you're still carrying a debt that God never intended for you to carry. You owe a price that you can't possibly pay on your own. But the great news this morning is that Jesus paid it all. And we simply place our trust in Christ alone. We come into proper alignment with the God of the universe, into a relationship we were created to have, and he makes all things new. If he can do that with a prostitute, if he can do that with murderers and adulterers, I guarantee you he can do that with you and he can do that with me this morning. And he can give meaning and purpose to our lives. I pray that you'll believe that this morning, that you'll believe that we are who God says we are, not what we've done. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. God, I thank you for not cladding the pages of Scripture with people who live lives that we can't possibly emulate. Thanks for filling Scripture with men and women who messed up, who had regrets, who had a past that's very similar to ours. Thanks for using them, God. Thanks for using a prostitute to bring your son into this world. For providing Jesus that we might have a sacrifice made for our sins and we might come into a relationship that we were created to have. God, I pray for people in this room this morning that are living defeated lives because of the whispers, because of the lies of Satan. I pray that we would once and for all believe that we are who you say we are. Our past can explain us, but it doesn't need to define us because of amazing grace Our chains have been set free. And God, I pray we would live that way so that we can make a difference for the cause of Christ in this world. We pray in Jesus' name.